Hello, my name's Giles Brandreth, and this is the podcast Something Rhymes with Purple. It's all about words and language. It's coming to you from the kitchen of my friend Susie Dent, who is my co-host on this podcast. Good morning, Susie, and thank you for having us here today. Thank you so much for coming. We are in Oxford, where you spent much of your life. You were at the University of Oxford? I was. I did go away in between then and now, in case I sound very sad. I lived in America for quite a long time. But yeah, I did go to university here. Yeah. And I don't think we need to apologise for it. Sometimes people feel they've got to apologise for the university they've been to. There was a the nice guy called Rory Stewart, who was you know, one of the people who hoped he'd be prime minister, mm. who, when asked what his weakness was, he said, you know, uh, oh, it was going to Eton and Oxford, as though these were bad things. I think what he meant was maybe my experience hasn't been as broad as it should be. Yeah, I'm not apologetic for Oxford. No, no, the no, fact you're that I'm not. still here. No. <laughs> but oh, no. I don't think I've been away. Um, no. But, uh, yes, I, do you know what, I actually also went to Eton, but just for a term, oh. because my school didn't cater for the Oxbridge exam at all. So I had to go to a local school and that local school happened to be Eton. So it was quite an eye-opener for me. You were the only girl at Eton? There was 13 of us. We were told to dress attractively but not provocatively. And uh, Can I um, say you've managed that all your life? <laughs> thank you. And, um, yeah, can you imagine? I went from a convent to a boys' school and I was utterly terrified. And were the boys nice? Um... Mixed, I would say, but then you get that in any school. Um, yeah, a, a lot of them were. To be honest, I was so scared of the whole thing that I didn't... And, and it was all entirely new to me on every single level. I'd not had this teaching. I didn't have that background. I was a total outsider. And um, the teaching was extraordinary. I don't think I would have got to Oxford without it, if I'm honest. But their confidence is what really amazed mm. me. So any question that was asked by a beak, which was their name for a tutor... The boys would uh, quite often slam their hands on the table because they wanted to answer it and then often stand up to deliver the answer. And I was so impressed. I was just completely numbed into silence. And then I soon realised that actually some of what they were saying was BS, really. And BS meaning bollocks. Meaning or, bullshit. Oh, and, bullshit. And, I'm yeah, so sorry. But it was delivered with such a plum that it was entirely credible. And if this is ringing any bells with anybody, um, you'll know what I mean. The delivery and the rhetoric and the, and the, the coaching in that is quite extraordinary. BS is the beginning and end of bollocks and of bullshit. And of, well, it certainly includes in bullshit. And of Boris. Bollocks Boris. my favourite swear word. Uh, Boris, was he at school with you then as well as university? Because I know he was at Oxford with was, you. He was, yeah. I, did, I didn't. I mean, I knew him a bit at university, but not particularly well. You know, you are now, I now realise you have something in common with the Queen. Do I? Because the Queen was educated by uh, Eton Beaks. Uh-huh. The Queen didn't go to school. She had really? governesses. Uh, who looked after at Windsor Castle. But Windsor Castle is right by Eton. And she was taught uh, constitutional history by one of the Beaks at Eton. And he found it so nerve-wracking teaching the future Queen, and she was only 12 or 13 years of age, that he hardly was able to speak. And he would sit there, apparently, uh, chewing his uh, knuckles. uh, And was so nervous. In one hand, was chewing his knuckles, and the other, he held, held a handkerchief, and he sort of chewed on that um, while while teaching. She was the, the queen. opposite for me. I was the one chewing the hanky, and in fact, I was so so self conscious and mortified by the fact that my stomach would rumble quite loudly, which is unfortunately an unfortunate family trait. You might pick it up on the podcast that I used to stuff myself with minstrels. This is one of my big mem- memories before any lesson. This is not particularly healthy approach. I would just take loads of minstrels, which are obviously minstrels is a chocolate. chocolate chocolate confection, um, in order to stop my stomach 
just raising the roof. I, unfortunately, was at Oxford a generation before you. And amusingly, this week on Twitter, a contemporary of mine, a man called Philip Hodson, do you know, he used to write, uh, he was an agony aunt for people with sex problems. Oh, wow. You know, like you, Dr. Ruth? Uh, like Dr. Ruth, but, I mean, whatever, you you know, he, he solved it. Uh, and a very nice guy. And he was telling somebody, people were talking about how uh, when Boris was at Oxford, people were saying, you know, 20 years from now, he'll be prime minister, 30 years from now. And uh, he was saying that, when he was at Oxford, people used to say that I was the most likely really? person to be How prime funny. minister. And, of course, that's what I thought at the time, too. Well, you almost... No. Made. Well, you went in that direction. I went in that direction, way. but the people spoke, and in no <laughs> uncertain terms. So they, they made their feelings very clear. My contemporaries included uh, Edwina Curry, mm. then Edwina Cohen, and Widdicombe, who I always describe as that curious cross between Margaret Rutherford and Danny DeVito. Um <laughs> And Whittacombe, and she had a boyfriend at the time, a fellow called Colin. And they, they walked around together holding hands. They looked like a couple of, uh, sort of right, like Russian dolls. You know, those dolls, you open up one and they sort of, they were, but they were delightful. They were delightful my, One then. of my abiding memories of Anne Whittacombe, who occasionally came on Countdown, was the fact that, um, as you all know, sometimes rude words come up mm. or slightly risque words. And um, we had orgasmed uh, for eight. <laughs> Um, just checking it, say, and um, and said, I'm I'm not saying that. This is an afternoon tea time show. I actually got very irate about the fact that I'd written it down on my pad. Um, so I was left with the decision as to whether to offer it or not. And as it was by far and away our longest word, I'm afraid I did. Quite right too. So she wasn't best pleased. Perfectly legitimate. One of my, one of my memories. Um, but interesting what you say about Boris, because actually I think other people on Twitter would say he's the last of their contemporaries that they would ever have imagined to become prime minister. He was in the debating society. He was a good debater. Mm. Um, but, you know, it's not all about delivery, is it? No, it's actually very much about ambition. I yeah. think it's very much, uh, most people, in my experience, if they really know what they want and they really, really want it, mostly they get it. Really? And I I'm think I. Try that. Uh, yeah, you should try that. <laughs> and I know that I didn't become Prime Minister because I didn't really, want really it. I want it. I mean, I, I was an MP and I was in the government. I was a government whip. I was Lord Commissioner of the Treasury. It was fascinating. Mm. It was, in many ways, the most interesting thing I've ever done. Mm. But when I lost my seat, I wasn't hungry to go back. And a few months later, when somebody phoned up from central office, the Conservative was saying, We've got a seat coming up. It's a safe one. Would you be interested? I thought, Not sure that I would anymore. Mm. And once you feel that way, um, then you know it won't happen. But if you really want something, it's like us with this podcast. We really wanted to do a podcast about words and language, and we ended up doing it. And people listen to it, and it is lovely. And it's lovely being here because you've got a cat. And I love <laughs> That's a lovely, cats. lovely segue. Well, because we can talk about animals. I we are. What is your cat animals. called? My, our cat is from Battersea. Uh, cats and dogs home which i will just always uh be grateful to i just think they're the most amazing institution for all of us and we should cherish it um and uh she was named our cat was named by them she, essentially she was the shyest in her litter and was a little bit bullied by her siblings and they called her bo peep because she used to hide everywhere so we call her bo for short i love the idea of a cat being called Bo Peep, little Bo Peep. How She's sweet. very shy. Well, Bo, Bo for, for short, as I say, because Bo Peep would be slightly embarrassing. Uh, uh, but she's really, really uh, a little sort of tiny 
very scared she is little thing. She's, she's a scaredy I've cat. Seen, I've seen her. She's a little scaredy cat. She's skittled past me. We love animals. What I want to ask you is why, when we use animals in our language, is it always negative? If you say if somebody they are catty, mm. okay? Uh, you say somebody they're batty. Mm-hmm. You say somebody, you know, your dog tired, sick as a pig, yeah. blind as a bat, timid as a mouse. All these things are negative. Should sick we be. Sick as a parrot. Sick as a parrot. Yes. Should we be reporting the English language to the RSPCA? Mm. How has this come about? It's really interesting you should say that. Well, I think it's partly because historically animals weren't treated in the same way as they may be today. So this is, you know, abattoirs and the food industry aside, we adore our cats and dogs for the most part, don't we? Um, and we are appalled. Um, as English-speaking nations when they're mistreated. But in the past, they really were. So if you have a hang dog expression, for example, that looks back to when dogs were literally tried in courts for any misdemeanor. So if a, if a dog pinched some sausages from a butcher's, say, I mean, I'm probably, I'm probably talking about more heinous crimes than this, but it's quite possible that it would be tried in court and sentenced to death. Excuse me. A dog would be pulled into the court of law and a magistrate, I imagine it's just sausages, or a judge if it was something more serious, if it attacked a human being, the animal itself would be put on trial. Yes. Not the owner of the animal. Not the owner. Now, in modern law, it would be the owner of the animal. Quite right. not looking after your animal yes. properly. Yes. But in those days, they could try. And so a hang dog, hang dog is expression. because it was sentenced. The judge put on the black cap, as it were, and I sentenced this dog to be hung, was it hanged? Hanged. Hanged. You can explain that to me in a moment. Uh, to be hanged by the neck until he, she is dead. It's and awful. they would take it away and string up the dog. It's awful. It's awful. And this is fact. So this it's is a not dog's life. No, it's not. It's absolute fact. So it's a dog's life um, is another one. Dog's dinner, you know, quite negative, as you say, idioms associated with dogs. Um before you go on to the other ones, can I in just In the doghouse, mind uh, you, well, that's I, Peter Pan. Yes. Well, I, I want to come back now, but just okay. to clear this up, because otherwise we'll get so many letters about it. Yes. Uh, and if you do have a letter, it's purple at somethingelse.com, where you write to us, P-U-R-P-L-E, at something, without a G, else, or one word, dot com. Uh, hung and hanged. Yes. I know that when somebody is hanged by the neck because they're going to be executed, it is hanged. I know when something is well hung, it's different. Uh, what is the difference between hung and hanged? And why can't you say uh, he was hung when somebody was executed? I think it's purely a distinction from the past. It is actually very useful to us because it does um, offer, as I say, you know, it offers that sort of differentiation. So it's very clear what's been used. But I'm correct. It is hanged it when is you're executed. It is hanged. Um, and I wouldn't be remotely surprised if that does change over time. I think I've even used, um, I mean, I say even I, but, you know, I, I, I'm supposed no. to know what I'm doing. Uh, I have used them interchangeably, wrongly, on occasion when I haven't been thinking about it. But, yes, it's very, very specific now. In the doghouse, that means that you're saying that's another phrase introduced by J.M. Barry. That was J.M. Barry. That was Peter Pan, because if you remember um, the the poor dog called... Nana. Nana. Was it called Nana? No, Nana. something like that. Nana. 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 I love this play. Peter Pan, I've spent my whole life living really in Peter Pan. I never wanted to you leave Peter like Pan. You look like Peter Pan, obviously. Thank you. Thank you. I, I'd <laughs> like to play Captain Hook, interesting enough. So, the doghouse, what happens in this is Mr. Darling is the husband, the father of the lost boys who go off to Neverland with Peter Pan. And because he is 
the boys have disappeared, and he was unkind to the dog, who was their nanny, na- Nana, Nana, Nana. One of the two. One of the two. He is put (laughs) into her doghouse and lives outside. So the expression, being put in the doghouse, comes from Peter Pan. Well, Ah. it's interesting. I mean, I think a lot of etymologists will confidently state that's where it comes from. It's it's not used in the play, um, but there's obviously that association there. But also, could it also be that the idea came to the playwright... Because the notion of actually putting somebody out of the house, you might as well go and sleep in the doghouse. You're house. just out in the cold, exactly. A dog's life, sick as a dog, a dog's body, raining cats and dogs. All these are negative connotations because we didn't take our pets seriously. They were working animals. Yes, there are exceptions to that. For example, you were very foxy. Uh, that's a nice one, isn't it? If you're foxy. I suppose you're so. If you're fox. vulpine, though, less so. Wolf-like. I wouldn't necessarily call you... Oh, no, you wouldn't necessarily, and I wouldn't necessarily would call, I call you foxy. Weasley. Oh, thanks. Oh, well, oh, do you um, want to be foxy? Is that a compliment? Well, foxy's good. Uh, what about things like the bee's knees? Oh, oh well, the bee's knees. Well, this goes back to an era where, you know, it was post-war um, exuberance, really, that was then expressed through language. So it was a kind of celebratory time uh, when war was out of the way, um, rationing had finished, and uh, people just wanted to just throw language around and be particularly playful. So this is kind of 1940s. Um, yeah, so you have the bee's knees. Um, I mean, some of them are quite extraordinary. You have the, the kipper's knickers, the elephant's adenoids, uh, which I quite like. Uh, not the dog's bollocks. That came later. We talked about that, haven't we? Because that was printed slang for the colon dash. Mm-hmm. But I think because it followed that formula of the bee's knees, the cat's whiskers, etc. Colon dash, um, it looks like the it dog's looks like bollocks. like the dog's bollocks. That's what yes. it's called, the dog's bollocks. But the bee's knees, you're telling me, is a phrase that came in in the 1940s. Yeah, I and think it, it was expressed 1940s. exuberance. Yes. Well, He's the bee's knees. It's the bee's knees. It's the acme of excellence, isn't it? But I think people just loved playing around with language at this time, um, you know, to, to sort of express something that is the highest quality. And what were the other ones? Um, elephants I'm, adenoids. I've never heard that. Elephants no, adenoids. No, no, So a lot of these faded, faded, um, sadly. Um, and there was a bee knee, a bee's knee in the 18th century, meaning something really small, which makes much, makes much more sense. Oh, that's charming. Um, but here it says actually early the 1940s, um, early 20th century America, nonsense expression, that denoted something that didn't have any meaningful expression. But then, later on, a few decades later, um, 1920s, 1930s, you have the snake's hips. Oh, I um, love that. The monkey's eyebrows. You're the snake's uh, hips. The cat's pyjamas. Oh, cat's pyjamas. That's, that's you know that stuck, one. isn't it? Yeah. Oh, you're so the cat's pyjamas. I suppose it's flapper language, really. It's flapper, and it kind of, you can see how it would fit with a sort of flapper. He's the bee's knees. Gaiety, oh, can't you? You're, you're the cat's pyjamas. Yeah, you can see that. Um, so I love all of those. I think Dog's Bollocks is possibly one of my favourite, but as I say... Do I don't like that at all. Do you not? No, I don't like visualising them. I don't like the phrase. I don't. Funny enough, I don't like the word bollocks. Do you not? I love the word bollocks. I don't like the word bollocks. I have used it, I'm afraid, on occasion, but I, I don't... What's your swear word of choice? Not We've already talked about swearing, but, you know, it's a big What's subject. my swear word of choice? I try to avoid swear words. I, I've become much worse. Mm. I've been taking part in a television series called Celebrity Gogglebox. Yes, 
And, and you've been watching Naked Attraction, if oh, I remember. We, 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 I think we need a whole episode to talk about Naked Attraction and possibly both of us in our kimonos. But that's, a, that's <laughs> for another day. You and Sheila. Uh, I'm doing it with the wonderful Sheila Hancock. And Hancock is slang for something. I'm not quite sure what. Johnson, I discovered, is, is slang oh, yes. for something. I didn't realise that. Yes. And he was wearing, Boris Johnson was wearing a very long tie on an interview the other day. And Sheila Hancock said, oh, look, he's got a Johnson over his Johnson. <laughs> It's quite appropriate, really, isn't it, when you think about it? Anyway. Yes. Um, that's neither here nor there. Uh, wild Goose Chase, where does that come from? Uh, wild Goose Chase is nice. Um, it refers to the formation that uh, geese tend to fly in, which um, was also the formation used by riders who sometimes would set off as a, as a sporting pursuit um, as a sort of hunt. But they would be, I can't actually remember what the target of their... Uh, of their chase would be it was it was a little bit like a hunting pursuit but they so they they were positioning themselves like yeah. wild geese yes that so was if the... you see wild geese as you do sometimes I, where I live in London I went near the um, wetland centre in West London yeah. and you actually see formations of geese flying on Canada geese they and they do the leader don't they so it's yeah. slightly V shape so it is a, a V shape so I think it was a horse race in which everyone followed the leader essentially ah, because um, the, the way it works out now when you describe a wild goose chase it's i thought you were chasing a wild goose and it was something you were never likely to catch you're going off on a wild goose chase you will never catch it but in fact what it's about is the formation of the geese in pursuit and i think the pursuit thing is key because the idea was then transferred to people who were just following their own impulses following their own inclinations to um yeah and disregarding anybody else's i think that was the idea it's just right i'm going this way uh so so quite a long complicated history back to the 17th century oh. um this one uh wild geese what's the plural of wild goose chase it's not wild geese chase is it wild goose chases wild goose chases while we're on that just before we have our break because we must have a break tell me about this uh, you're using your computer there and you haven't got a proper mouse you're using your finger on the thing i am but, i like mice though but yeah, oh, mouses what is it why a it's called a mouse because the original ones looked like a sugar mouse in a way that's why it's called a mouse correct yes and it's got a tail it used to be attached physically to the machine so that's why it was called a mouse yeah. why then is the plural not mice well i think it's just again to preserve that distinction so you know i mean obviously no one's going to have a real mouse hopefully on their on their desk but i think it's just a handy distinction between the two separate very separate entities well there you are life is very confusing i want to discover about the white elephant but i want to have an ad break first <gasps> white elephants yes oh okay stay tuned Susie, please, can you tell me what wanderlust means? Well, it comes from German and it means a strong desire to travel. And Jazz, I know you love to tell anecdotes. So do you have a good travel story? I had an amazing time in Iceland. I went pony trekking and the person who was in charge of the pony trekking told me that in those days, on a Thursday evening, there was no television in Iceland because people were supposed to be at home reading books. Well, let me tell you about Explore Worldwide. They organise small group adventures that are led by local tour leaders so that you can fully immerse yourself in local knowledge whilst exploring a new country. The most important part of the holiday is respecting local culture and environment. And Explore can help you find expert tour leaders that can get you off the beaten track and into the heart of your adventure. Whether it's a food and wine tour in the hilltop towns of Tuscany or a walking tour in the rice fields of Vietnam, Explore 
take care of everything, putting the quality of their local tour leaders front and centre so you'll truly understand the wow factor of where you are. If you're thinking about your next adventure, head to exploreworldwide.co.uk to find out more. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. I'm Giles Brand. This is Susie Dent. Where something rhymes with purple. We're talking about animals, and I want to know the origin of the expression white elephant. Mm. Well, a white elephant is uh, essentially something that is a burden rather than a boon, isn't it? It's something that actually you're saddled with um, and that is not as good as it seems. And this goes back, it's a wonderful story. It goes back to the story, true or not, we're not completely sure, but that the kings of Siam would give a white elephant to any courtiers that they disliked or found annoying because they knew that white elephants were considered to be particularly sacred. So they couldn't be used as working animals. They were of no use to um, to the courtier whatsoever. But the upkeep was incredibly expensive. So you lumbered somebody with genuinely a white elephant. Exactly. It wasn't Something a, that was a statue, expensive, but it was actual difficult, animal to keep. Yeah, difficult to, to dispose of. Well, of course, because it was given to them by the king, they couldn't possibly give it away either. Rather like when I was a child, Edward Heath, who was prime minister, was given a panda's by the government of China, and they had to come back to this country. How and, well, well, the, it was the idea was a kind gift, but then you had to the government had to spend thousands, probably millions in all, feeding these pandas that wouldn't breed. Anyway, right. white elephant. What about the elephant in the room? The elephant in the room. It's interesting. A long, long um, list of conjectures about that one. Um, it's fairly recent, as we know. This is a subject that everyone knows exists, or a problem that everyone knows exists, but no one dares speak of. Um, and its ultimate origin is pretty unknown. Um, we don't really know where it comes from. It's sort of mentioned in various kind of business theses, etc. You're looking at me like this. Do you know where it comes from? No, I don't. But I'm thinking if anybody does, what you do is you communicate with us, purple yeah. at something else. That's something without the G else, all one word, dot com, purple at something else. And if you've got the answer, we will then share it. People have got some questions. Can I chip okay. in with some questions yes. before we do any more uh, animal chit chat? If we've got time for that, it's quite exciting being here in your home because I, I think you've done some baking, which is lovely. Some cookies smell something quite nice, or, or maybe that's the cat. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> we so many questions, and this one I don't think we'll have the answer to this. I haven't. This is from Sandy Brown. Sandy Brown asks, can you tell me whether there is a specific name for a letter within a word that is pronounced twice? Examples that Sandy gives. The second H in threshold, threshold. The second E in wherever, wherever. It's one word, but, you know, it's where and ever, but they come together. Uh, The second H in Churchill, Churchill, you pronounce it, but actually it's only one H. In threshold, there's only one H at the beginning of the hold part, but you say thresh and then hold. Is there a word for that, for that second letter? Well, now I can only, I can only think of digraphs, really, but I'm not Who? Di- a digraph. A diagraph? Um, that sounds like something you take when you've got bowel problems. A diagraph. Yes. 
Actually, I'm going really... to the chemist. You're actually wanting to buy Viagra, but you lose your nerve the last minute and say, I'll have a packet of Diagraph. Thank you. D-I-A-G-R-A-P-H. Yeah, but I don't think this is the right the right one for this. This it's actually... Two instances. So there's a kind of double letters, two instances of the same character. Ah. Um... Oh, except they're not two. It's the pronunciation. There are not two instances. It's one instance of the same it's character, used, but it's it? used twice. Yeah, threshold. I guess it's just what's happened there is that the hyphen has disappeared, as they won't do these days. So hyphens are definitely on their way out, like adverbs. Ah. And they're coming together. So the word is... But in order to preserve the original... It's called the absent hyphen. The absent hyphen, should we call it that? I think we should call it the absent hyphen. So, Sandy Brown, the answer to your question, <laughs> can you tell me whether a specific name for a letter within a word that is pronounced twice? Yes, it's known as the absent hyphen. Do you know what? Sometimes my knowledge of linguistic nomenclature is is uh, woefully lacking. So if there are any really hardcore linguists out there to, who want to correct me, please feel free yeah. to do so. I love the way she said nomenclature. Nomenclature. You've got to get that right, yes. otherwise you could well be in uh, trouble with the uh, political correctness police. We've had an... Email from Ryan Tempest. He says, Ryan Tempest. What a great, great name. name. Ryan Tempest. Tonight on the Ryan Tempest Hour, Ryan's guests include Foxy, Susie Dent, and me. Go on. What's the question? <laughs> a lot of people I know say Pacific instead of specific. Oh, that's so nice. Pacifically. Is this a simple slip of the tongue, or has Pacific ever had the same meaning as Pacific in local dialect or slang? Well, Pacific no. versus specific. Yes. It's one of those, what we call, Egg corns, really. Uh, mis- mispronunciation. I'm not sure if it's, it's a pure egg corn. Slips of the ear, really, that we believe to be right. Uh, and it really gets on people's nerves, specifically. Uh, Pacific actually goes back to um, pacify. Uh, so the Pacific Ocean was a sort of peaceful, calm uh, ocean. That was the idea there. Um, whereas specific, obviously, is, is very different. And unfortunately... If we look on Ox's databases, you will see specifically making inroads. But somehow I doubt it's ever going to replace the original. I don't think it's going to be like mischievous, eventually overtaking mischievous. Am I a bad person? Because yes. I find this sort of thing, <laughs> I find this sort of thing so irritating. Yes, I know. You're not the, alone. I, I, I mean, there was an advertisement the other day in the newspaper where uh, an apostrophe was presented as um, a incorrectly as a an opening inverted comma. Are you with me? Mm. So it was an apostrophe, but the wrong way around. The wrong way around, okay. In, in, in an advertisement for a large, in a national newspaper. And I thought, this is so annoying. And my wife said to me, get a life, Giles. It really doesn't matter. And so if somebody says specifically instead of specifically, does it actually matter? Well, obviously, as you know, I, I wrote a book called Have You Eaten Grandma?, um, still in print, uh, I'm pleased to say, all about this, and it became a bestseller because obviously to a lot of people it does matter. But am I wrong? Am I getting my knickers in a twist about nothing? Uh, no, I don't think you are because inevitably it's going to impact upon your message, isn't it? Notice I said impact upon rather than impact your message. Oh, uh, well done. That's a whole different different um, kettle of fish. But, um, I mean, as you know, I'm not a linguistic pedant at all, but I would also get annoyed by that because immediately you, your mind trips up on it yeah. and so the rest of the sentence is slightly lost. Um, as for things like nuclear versus nuclear, which people get very annoyed about. Nuclear that me so as much. opposed to nuclear. Yeah, as in The Simpsons. But that's not, I, that doesn't really worry me so much. Speaking of it's The Simpsons, personal, isn't it? it's almost time for The Simpsons. I love The Simpsons. Great. So look, we're going to have to wind up our podcast and get oh, in wait, front of the box. We've got so many things to say still. Well, we're going to do, we'll have to do some more. 
Before we go outside, I see it's raining cats and dogs. I'm looking out over Susie Dent's beautiful Oxfordshire garden. The flowers are blooming. The cat is looking drenched. Be kind of slid it back in. The cat is in. The cat is in. The cat is in. The cat is in. Uh, Raining cats and dogs. Yes. Well, again, where to start on this? So many, uh, there's a very uh, common email that goes round entitled Life in the 1500s, I think, which is just very funny for etymologists because it's full of wonderful stories that are completely wrong. And the one about raining cats and dogs is that um, cats and dogs used to live on the thatched roofs in medieval times um, of houses and would be washed down by the rain. Uh, Not true, because, I mean, what cat and dog ever lives in a thatched roof? Certainly not a dog. Um, We think it is um, a bit like, I mean, why do we say raining stairs? What do we say? Stair rods, don't we? It's pretty much, it's something that is kind of heavy, thunder plumping from the sky. Well, stair rods, you can actually see stair rods raining down in lines, but cats and dogs. Yeah. Well... It's just, uh, we think it's just a, a metaphor that had no literal application. But if you want a literal application, well, sort of mythological application, it's believed that cats and dogs were attendants upon witches um, or the god of thunder, depending on the story that you pick. So that, um, in fact, if it was raining cats and dogs, it was answering the calls of, um, you know, of ethereal others that were, were sort of demanding heavy weather. I mean, it's, honestly, I can't, I can't begin to tell you how many theories were attached to that, but we think it was a simple metaphor right from the start. I love delving into your mind, Susie Dent. <laughs> you're wonderful. I've decided we're going to keep fish and everything to do with the sea for another day. Okay. Okay, because otherwise we would be here okay. all night and I want to get to watch The Simpsons. D, right. I, I'm a bit of a Simpsons. What's your favourite TV programme? I love The Simpsons. Oh, I'm, I love things like Big Little Lies, massively into that at the moment. Uh, have you watched that? No, I have no, no time. I'm just watching Naked Attraction back to back. Well, actually not back to back. <laughs> it's all front to front, isn't it? <laughs> They've been in touch with me about celebrity Naked Attraction. Sheila Hancock has said no. Are you, might you be possibly interested? Yeah. What do you think? Good. Well, uh, if we're available next Tuesday, do tune into our next one. We may be at the Celebrity Naked Attraction auditions. Who knows? Speak for yourself. I want to discover where Susie Dent keeps that tattoo. (laughs) Oh, we haven't talked about tattoos. No, we can talk about tattoos another day. There's so much. If you want to get in touch, you know what our address is. Oh, if people enjoy this, they should review it, shouldn't they, if they can? Or tell a friend. Word of mouth is the best way of communicating. So word of mouth is important. Uh, But before we go, we have to have your trio. Yes, we do. This is three words from Susie. Well, a couple of idioms to start with involving animals. The first involves a beautiful fable about an animal, um, that animal or bird, I guess, being the swan. Um, It's a swan song. Have you ever wondered why the final performance given by somebody at the end of their career or, um, Mm. you know, the, the end of something anyway is called a swan song? Yes, like, you have wondered. No, I didn't. I was just thinking Mrs. May, the departing Prime Minister, her last yes. Prime Minister's questions, her swan song. Her swan song. As. Yes. Well, it goes back to the belief that swans, because this, this is ancient belief, uh, that swans are born mute and they remain mute all their lives until the moment of their death when they sing Goodness. the most beautiful, mournful song. Oh. It's not true because, in fact, swans have a wide range of vocal sounds, but it's an utterly beautiful myth, isn't it? It's a wonderful I like myth. that one. Um, so that's that. Uh, the second is dog's body. Now, everyone knows what a dog's body is. It's somebody who's just assigned all the most menial tasks. Yeah. Um, I think I don't know the feeling. But actually, that first meant peas boiled in cloth aboard a ship. 
That was dog's body. It was a joke amongst sailors that what they were about to eat was a dog's body. So they then, the, presumably the person who had to cook all this mush uh, was... Oh, so it's like mushy peas, peas boiled in cloth. Yeah, I think it was not as delicious as mushy peas. Uh, so depending on where you stand on mushy peas, not literally. Uh, so yes, the person probably assigned to cook this horrible mess was then, was then considered to be, you know, somebody the lowest of the low, I guess. Hence I have to interrupt. Probably. I always loved it when Peter Mandelson <laughs> supposedly <laughs> mistook mushy peas for guacamole. For guacamole. <laughs> so such a funny idea when he turned up at whatever constituency he was given. Anyway, go on. So that's the origin of dog's body. Dog's body. And I mention this purely because in one of our future podcasts, we're going to talk about food. Oh, good. We? So that one Ooh, fits, fits glorious. Into- Food, I can that? sing hits from Oliver. And the third one? Uh, the third one is cold turkey. Let's stay with turkeys. Now, I've mentioned before on the podcast that um, gobbledygook was coined by the son of Samuel Maverick. Um, and we went into Maverick and why he That's was called Maverick. Um, but cold turkey is something else. If you go cold turkey, obviously, you are coming off uh, something that you are dependent upon. And we think it simply goes back to the idea that um, coming off something might um, cause you to have goosebumps. Goose, what do you call goosebumps. them? Goosebumps. Or goose pimples. What Go- do you call but them? Goosebumps is interesting. That's because your flesh is like... Exactly. It's like, like the a, cold a, a, skin of a... Of a goose, goose, of a plucked goose. Of a plucked goose. Pretty horrible, especially for a vegetarian. I'll, but that's I say, why we think we have goosebumps. You, you always, cold turkey. You always talk turkey. What's the origin of talk turkey? Well, probably goes back to gobbledygook. Ah, which is the son, which was originated by the son of, of Samuel Maverick, who oh, gave us the word Maverick. Oh, don't you agree, if you're listening to this podcast, there is almost an erotic charge in hearing <laughs> Susie Dent talk about the English language. This has been Something Rhymes with Purple. Spread the word if you can. It's a Something Else production produced by Paul Smith with additional production. Oh, fuck off. <laughs> uh, that was, and please keep that in, that was the ludicrous Paul Smith making me look at the microphone as if people weren't hearing it. This is the bit they already switch off anyway. They don't want the ads. They don't want this credit. They know that's they, all they listen for is, I know this, all they want to hear is Susie on language. They tolerate me because occasionally they hear one of my stories they haven't heard before, but only rarely. <laughs> they just want to hear Susie. And that's ludicrous. The producer was pointing at the microphone. You heard every word. Word of that. It's amateur night, but it's done by uh, something else productions. The work experience person appears to be Paul Smith, with additional <laughs> production from Lawrence Bassett, Steve Ackerman, and Gully. Um, yes, well, I'm just going to go to the loo, and then I think it's going to be The Simpsons for us. Thank you. See you next Tuesday. <laughs>